Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now On this week's episode, we're going to talk about one of the most fundamental pieces of homebrewing equipment out there. When people start homebrewing, specifically in all grain, one of the easiest ways to go all grain is obviously brewing a bag. So today I have Rex Legal on the show, and we're going to talk specifically about the brew bag this week on Homebrewing DIY. recipes and taking good notes are two of the key fundamentals of making great beer. This is one of the first things that you learn when becoming a new brewer. I started taking notes on a sheet from my extract kit and then quickly moved to brewing software. I've tried many different types of brewing software and then I found Brewfather. This is the one piece of software that you need for recipes and very detailed brew day notes as well as fermentation notes. Brewfather also integrates with some of the topics that we discuss on this show like the till hydrometer, the ice spindle, and ferment track. You need no other piece of software than Brewfather. One of the best parts of Brewfather is that you can try it for free. All you need to do is head to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and click on the Brewfather banner to sign up for free today. Once again, that's homebrewingdiy.beer, and sign up for Brewfather today. Keeping a clean brewery is the key to making great beer that doesn't get contaminated. Do you use a glass or plastic carboy for your fermentation? Did you know that getting your carboy clean can be tough, especially removing the crucin ring? Even with traditional carboy cleaning tools, it can take a lot of time and not get your carboy completely clean. Well, today there's a new tool that can easily clean your carboy and do it fast, and that tool is called a scrubber ducky. Scrubber duckies are a new magnetic carboy cleaner that are easy to use and get the cleaning results required in brewing. Drop a magnetic scrubber into your carboy and be able to scrub away all of the grime in that hard to clean crucin. They are no match for scrubber duckies and you can get yours today at scrubberduckies.com. Once again, head over to scrubberduckies.com. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Do you have a subject you want to discuss with listeners? 
Do you even know where to start? Well, if you want to make a podcast and you want to get started now, I could not recommend Anchor enough. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. Creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Hey, look, I shopped around for a place to post my podcast and Anchor was the easiest, most streamlined experience you could ask for. So if you're looking for a place for your new podcast, Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this show covers it all. On this week's show, we're talking to Rex Legal, the founder and creator of The Brew Bag, which is a BIAB or brew in a bag bag or filter that you can buy for homebrewing. Rex is a great guy, and we talk about all, some of the challenges and myths out there about brew in a bag, as well as w- what kind of quality you want to look for when purchasing a bag. So stick around for that interview. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's that ongoing support that keeps this show coming to you week after week. Another way to support the show is to head over to podchaser.com, or if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, just scroll to the bottom of your app and leave us a five-star review. Your reviews are also what help others find the show. The last way to support the show is to head over to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, And you can use our sponsor banners. Our sponsor banners also help support the show. And just going over there and clicking on one of those, your prices stay the same, but you can buy software like Brewfather and they know that we sent you and then they in turn support the show. Another way to support the show is to go to coffee. That's ko-fi.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. And there you can give a one-time support. So if you want to leave us a tip or buy us a beer, head over to coffee.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. And not a lot going on in my brewery right now. I, I do have a couple projects where I am starting to work on my brew pie remix. I'm in the process of gathering all my parts. I, I almost have them all. I'm now to where I'm just waiting on a single relay and I can start my build. Also need to do some other things like get the high voltage side. So a plug I need to get a power cord and things like that. But that's just a quick trip to Home Depot. Not a big deal. And, you know, just those are kind of the things that are brewing in my brewery. I've now got quite a little yeast bank of Kvikes right now. And so we're going to be making lots of Kvike beer here at the Homebrewing DIY world. I've got some Oslo. Obviously, I've just made a beer with that. I also just got some Voss, some Gera and some Lutra, as well as the Hornendal strain. So I've got quite the little yeast bank of dried Kvikes laying around, and I'm going to make some beers out of those. So pretty excited about that. I think I'm actually going to try to squeeze a brew day in tomorrow and 
just do a quick Pilsner and try the Lutra. So see how that tastes. I'll let you know because, you know, I like to talk about what I'm brewing on the show. Well, let's jump into this week's show where we're going to talk to Rex Legal and we're going to talk to him about the brew bag. I'd like to welcome Rex Slagle to Homebrewing DIY. Hi, Rex. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the invitation. Awesome. Rex is the owner and proprietor of thebrewbag.com. If you've ever seen me talk about it excessively on this show, it's probably because they are one of our affiliate sponsors for the show. And Rex, thank you so much for taking my email and coming down to the show to talk us about brew bags today. Uh, you're welcome. And I guess right off the bat, I'd like to make just a slight correction. It's brewinabag.com, but the, the bag itself is known as the brew bag. So the website is brewinabag.com. It is right. It is brewinabag.com and it is called the brew bag. So thank you for correcting me. And you're going to also correct me because I just, went off calling it a bag and i think you like to refer to it as a filter is that correct <laughs> yes i do <laughs> <laughs> we we started that trend a little while ago uh well, i shouldn't say a little while ago now it's actually probably been four years ago when i i no joke was changing the oil in my car and it dawned on me that i was actually selling a filter and not a bag uh, and that really changed our approach to how we do business. So yeah, <laughs> that's when it all happened. Well, I'm going to try to change my terminology here on out and call it my, my, my filter for my brew. Yeah. And, and I also want to just let everyone know, I actually use one of your filters and have since about 2016. And I've had my original one that I bought in 2016 and still use it to this day. It is the bag that I use for every beer I've made since 2016. So, and that's a lot of beer. And so uh, I want to say it is a great quality bag. I also want to let everyone know, I, I'm going to ask Rex to take his, I own a, a, a filter company uh, hat off for just the beginning of this to talk about, you know, brewing a bag is a style of beer that has been out, I would say since the late aughts, right? Really kind of originated in Australia. And before that, it was really specifically in the United States, a style of brewing that was not really around. And then it kind of became a thing. So my question for you would be, how did you first brew in a bag and what was it like when you got started? Like, how did you find out about it and how did you, what, what, give me your first experience using a bag. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it actually was a bit of frustration on my part. I had been brewing extract for a while, maybe a year and a half or so, and I was ready to, you know, quote unquote, graduate to all grain. Uh, and so like everybody else doing that process, I needed to buy the equipment. So, uh, you know, I, my kids asked me what I wanted for Christmas and I said a cooler, uh, you know, so I could have a mash tun and I uh, bought some, uh, you know, a ball valve and some other attachments and things that I was going to use. Christmas came, opened up my cooler, went into the basement to put it together, and uh, I had miscalculated the uh, the ball valve length and stem and all that kind of thing. Anyway, it didn't fit, and I was a little ticked because <laughs> I was pretty excited about you know getting my brew gear going, and so I thought you know what do other people do? How does this all happen? You know, are there any other methods? Do you have to have a mash tun? Do I have to have 
you know, a six foot tall piece of equipment? Do I have to have pumps? Do I have to have all that stuff? And so I literally got on the internet and I started looking for uh, other alternatives, you know, other ways to brew. And I came across brew in a bag and I didn't know anything about it at all, but I thought it made sense. And so I started just doing a little investigating and I couldn't find a bag that I thought was either good enough, you know, strong enough, or frankly, there was, <laughs> there was a, a, a woman in Ireland who was making a great bag, a really good bag. Uh, but she had three children and the deal was you had to give her 20 bucks up front. And then when she got time to make you bag, she'd call you or send you an email or whatever. And uh, you'd give her the other 20 bucks and then she'd make your bag. And she said, sometimes it can take <laughs> six weeks and sometimes it can take three months. So if you're willing to wait, I can make you a great bag. And I was like, well, I'm not willing to wait. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that and, th- that, and I think back in that time, in those days, the, the average kind of thing was like, hey, get a paint strainer bag, right? This was those times, right? Oh, yeah. That was in 2011, right? And so the, yeah. the, the, the kick was, you know, just go to the, the fabric store, buy a piece of fabric and, you know, whack it off at the top, make it fit your kettle, and that's your bag. Yep. Um, and that was with that. And, and, and so there was another guy who was making bags out there, um, and I just didn't think his bags were strong enough. And so I... I mean, I guess I took, you know, the, the Irish woman's bag, which had strapping around the bottom, which I thought was odd since that was a stress point. And I just took that sort of concept and I invented the brew bag, um, the way it's made now with the strapping that goes all the way around. And I actually took it to a friend of ours, the idea to a friend of ours. And my wife and I kind of had an argument about how it should be made. And so I thought that might not be a good thing to continue that path. So I took it to this friend of ours and within about 45 minutes, she made the first brew bag and that was my bag. Um, and that was all there was to it. It was that simple. And so I, I never even considered that it could be a business at that point. But, uh, when I went to like brew gigs with other guys and, you know, I, I was using it and folks started asking me where I got it. And then could you make me one? You know, you, you finish brewing in you know three hours. I still got another two hours to go. This is amazing. So I started making bags for other people. I didn't actually. I've never actually made a bag myself. But um, I found someone to sew the bags, and the concept was there, and that's really how it started. Um, and you know, I just one thing led to another, and I started just chasing the rabbit. Um, and here we are, you know, two, 2020, seven years later, eight years later, actually. And now we sell all over the world, um, and um, and it's and it's a good thing. So, I, I think I answered your question, but I'm not positive. Did I answer no, your question? No, you did. You did. <laughs> how, how did you get into brewing a bag? And it seems to me out of necessity. And I think that that's kind of the case with everyone, right? Yeah. Uh, and I would say I have a very similar story when I was going all grain around 2013. So a couple years later than you. It, brew in a bag was all the rage and that was kind of the, the thing out there it was like hey just go get a piece of fabric and it can be a paint strainer bag or it can just be any type of nylon bag it, it's going to work and I went onto Amazon I got a bag and it was a really really coarse filter on it and it left a lot of particulate and actually I ended up getting a hot kettle and melting the bag right so I had a lot of issues when I started off with my brewing a bag set up and then right from that bag i went to one of your bags and i will say 
that it was a game changer. And so I, what I would like to talk about specifically is obviously you started off with a bag with straps and kind of went from there. What kind of modifications did you make to the bag as you started to brew with it more and started to realize that, hey, this method actually has ramifications? Well, the design of the bag hasn't changed, honestly. Uh, it, it, the original bag, I had a photo of uh, the very first time I used it. I, I, I was actually lifting it with a, a piece of wood out of my kettle and I took a photo of it on my deck and I still have that photo. And the, and the bag that we sell now is exactly the same design. What has changed is uh, that we recognized that we were selling a filter. And because we were selling a filter, uh, you know, all sorts of ideas, concepts and challenges sort of popped in my head. And I started wondering about what if, if we're actually selling a filter, what does that mean? What does it really mean? Uh, what does it do to the brewing process? What does it mean to grinding? What does it mean to, you know, time? What does it mean to setup? And all of those sorts of questions just popped all over me. And I, I've written a ton of information on our, our blog, and those were all the initial, you know, ideas and concepts and things that I expanded on when I began to understand that this bag would change the way people brew, not just as a convenience or as a way to prevent a stuck runoff, but literally could change the brewing community uh, in their approach to how they brew. Uh, because it becomes, it could become a staple, like a false bottom or like a ball valve or like a whatever. It really could become a piece of equipment. Um, and it has, as a matter of fact, right? Folks just go right to that. But I think maybe one of the, probably one of the biggest changes that occurred not too long ago, maybe a year and a half ago, is when we started introducing different micron ratings of the fabric into the commercially available bags. So now folks can, you know, depending on what they're brewing, what they're separating, you know, what they're trying to strain or filter, you know, we, we can give them some recommendations based on, uh, you know, the components of, of what they're manufacturing, literally. Um, so we've really turned into a, you know, sort of a filter company more than just a, you know, brew in a bag sort of thing, right? It's advanced. Uh, to a great degree. Um, and we sell, I honestly, I don't know off the top of my head, I've written it, I've written it down at one point, I, I want to say 20 or 25 different industries uh, use our bag now for all sorts of things from, from literally uh, straining worm castings to grape juice to uh, jalapeno sauces. Um, uh, even rocks, people use them to clean rocks. We also make bags for a guy in Hawaii who does microbe cleanup on the beach. Um, so, you know, it's sort of advanced in that sort of way. And that's not, I mean, we're not talking about beer now, but I'm just saying the filter concept is what really uh, changed the way we do business and in our application as far as brewers are concerned too, um, depending on what they're trying to do. And you guys design bags based on the type of vessel you're using. Like, for example, for years I've brewed in a kegel, and you have a specific kegel bag versus like a bag for a cooler, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we, we, I, I conceptually believe that the bag should 
it should act as if it's not there, right? So choosing a bag is, and choosing the right size bag is an integral part of, of the application itself. So if your bag is too small, for example, uh, and some folks say, oh, that fits just right. It's nice and tight on the outside. But if it's tight on the outside, that means it's not loose on the inside. And if it's not loose on the inside, that means the grain is being constricted to some degree. That's not good. And you don't get the proper water to grain contact uh, that you could or should get, uh, which optimizes conversion. If the bag is too big, then you get pockets inside the kettle itself where the grain settles. Uh, and it does sort of the same thing as constriction where those pockets, you know, sort of settle and you get balls of grain uh, rather than being the thing, you know, acting as if the bag is not there at all. Um, and stirring then becomes an issue if the bag is too big as well. You, you pick it up, you kick it, you know, you, you can tear it um, doing, doing that if the bag is too big. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and one of the things you mentioned just now was the different levels of conversion that you can get via the bag. Yeah. Let's say I'm a new brewer. I'm starting out brewing a bag. Obviously, if somebody came to me and they're asking me questions, hey, what can I do to help with my efficiency? The first thing I'm going to say is, well, what does your crush look like? Well, but what kind of tips would you give a new brewer when it comes to brewing a bag, when it comes to trying to get good conversion on a beer? Yeah. So it's a pretty simple thing. And if folks, you know, kind of go back, go backwards instead of forwards. Um, when I first began to understand what we were doing, I really began to question what the mill was all about, right? What's a mill do? Um, and at one point I thought a three roller mill was the bomb. Like you got to get a three roller mill because that's got more, got more rollers, right? So it must grind your grain better, right? Or something, but that's not the case. And most folks don't know that the three roller mill is really only meant to help you avoid a stuck runoff because the first roller cracks the grain open and leaves the husk mostly intact. The next two rollers actually crush the grain. So that was a tip off that, oh, well, why are we doing that? What's the husk all about? What's the point of that? Well, it fluffs the grain bed to some degree, right? It prevents uh, the clogging or mushing and, you know, you get a stuck runoff because it doesn't get through the grain. It doesn't flow. The water doesn't flow through the grain. A two-roller mill is obviously key to the whole thing. And you can have your mill, you know, your grain milled at a store, but they mostly aim for, you know, 3.9 or 4.1 or something like that because they don't want to get complaints about people getting stuck runoffs. Why? Because if you mill too fine with typical pickups not using a fabric filter, then they get clogged, right? They get clogged because they just do. They fill up with grain particulates and dust and tiny bits or whatever the case. So milling properly which is in, in what I always tell people is mill as low as your, as your mill will take the grain, right? So I, I set mine at 2.0 because that's as low as I could set it and have the grain still go through it. And you could reduce it, right? And, and do it again if you want. And there's a lot of stuff out there that, you know, people say, well, mill your grain twice. That's, you know, you'll get higher efficiency. But I, I don't understand that, frankly, because if you don't, if you don't have a, an adjustable mill and you, 
you know, you mill it one time and then you run it through again, I think, well, what did you just accomplish? I mean, you just, you know, if you milled it 3-0 and you put it again at 3-0, what did you do? You still got 3-0. <laughs> you still got 3-0. <laughs> so unless you adjust your mill, you didn't gain anything. But the proper crush is all about optimizing the grain for conversion. So you want as many grain bits, particles, dust, flour, you know, to whatever degree you can mill to touch water as possible. Because in the water is the enzymes, right? The enzymes convert the starch. So the smaller the, the, the starch is, the, the bits of starch, the greater the opportunity to convert to convert in a faster time period, but also more thoroughly. So, you know, if you have a thousand bits of grain as opposed to 10 bits of grain, well, you know, those thousand bits from the same kernel are going to be much, much smaller. Enzymes can attack them and do what they're supposed to do quicker, easier, you know, because it's more available. It's a broader sort of spectrum if you want to look at it that way. Um, so one of the things every brewer should do is optimize their grain crush for conversion, not to avoid a stuck runoff. And I'll, I'll throw this little, this, this little sample study. A, a, a guy in Chicago and I did sort of for almost a year and a half or two years. I forget how long exactly. But anyway, we, we tracked and put in the spreadsheet all of our brews. And he did roughly 75 in that time period, and so did I, for that matter. And both of us, using you know a typical that that mill I mean that mill setting, and a 2.6 uh, water to grain ratio. I mean 2.6 quarts per pound of grain, water to grain ratio. Both of us averaged 78.5 percent efficiency, with no recirculation, with no pumps without any other equipment of any sort. One kettle, one bag, grain, that's it. We both average 78.5%. So I just tell brewers, if you're not averaging 78.5%, there's something in your process that is not optimized. And I don't know what it is. You have to tell me what you're doing. But usually it's water to grain ratio and grain crush. And if you get those two things right, it's just, you know, it, it's just magic. It just does what it's supposed to do. Yeah, and do you squeeze your bag or not? With that, that's the big question. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I squeeze the hell out of mine. So yeah, always have, <laughs> always have. I, well, <laughs> no reason not to. <laughs> I know, but the, you you get people that are out there like, don't squeeze the bag, and I'm always like, I've never not squeezed my bag, and I've never had an issue. I actually had my original brew in a bag calculator that I had, and I had to make adjustments in it so that I could figure out how much water I was going to have left to yeah. calibrate for the squeeze, right? And I will tell you that squeezing my bag is something that I do and I, and I try to get every drop of water out of it. It, it, my, my bag is dry when I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Close as you can. The, the, the big argument out there in the, which is a myth of course, is that, you know, you'll get tannins if you squeeze your bag. And I don't know how that started. I, I, you know, somebody must've been a geologist or something and they looked up, you know, how do you get, how do you get tannins out of a rock? I, I don't really I know. think, I think it more <laughs> comes from partigile brewing. Right. And so the idea is that, and I don't know how it, 
moved into squeezing, but I think that, you know, for example, when you're brewing things like a party guy, you have your first runnings, then you make a beer from the second runnings. And then when you get into like third or fourth runnings, it does become a very tannin laden beer, right? If you're trying to get as much out of it with what's left of the husk. But with brewing a bag, I just don't think that you're ever going to squeeze enough to get tannins out of it. You just can't. So. You, you can't. And, and speaking of the party guy, we're going to get first, second, third runnings, yeah. right? The, 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 the primary reason for that, and this is the old days, we have the advantage now that we didn't have before, is that the pH is the primary factor that brings on the tannins. So when pH goes above 5.8, then bang, you know, you start getting polyphenol or, or polymer. I forget the exact phrase. I apologize for that. But anyway, there's a phrase by which, you know, uh, tannins are created um, and it involves pH and enzymes and all the other things in the, in the word. But that's when it occurs and it has nothing to do with it. So in the old days, right, you just sparge. You sparge with yeah. water. You get water and you sparge. So as the buffers in the grain move into the boil kettle and they are not in the mash tun, the pH rises as you're sparging, and that sets up the scenario for tannin extraction. Exactly. And I I, I think that somehow that is where people got the, don't squeeze the bag, you're going to get tannins. So yeah. it's kind of, but to me, it's it, it makes sense. If you're washing your grain and you've washed away all the sugar, all that's left is going to be basically very basic water going through that, and you're pulling yeah. out all what's left. Yeah. and tenants so yeah what yeah, one thing that i think people have when it comes to a brew in a bag setup is when you get into larger beers like for example i i find and this is, has to do with the size of my kettle specifically that when i get into beers that are try, i'm shooting for a 1070 or a 1080 beer I sure. do start to lose efficiency when it comes to brewing in a bag. I've actually overcome that. I just mashed twice now, and I have zero issue. That That's actually how I've, I've overcome it. But what what other kind of ways could you get better efficiency when you're looking for big beers in brewing a bag? Well, the, the primary way to maintain efficiency, and I've got records to, to verify this, is to not let your water-to-grain ratio change. Instead, I mean, it depends on what you're after, right? So you've got to make a choice. If you're going to do a big beer, you can either say, I'm going to brew less beer and have the same efficiency, or I'm going to brew the same amount of beer and I'm going to suffer efficiency. And so the bag is has is of no consequence to a reduced efficiency. Uh, whether you're a sparge guy or a, or a bag guy, the more grain you put in that kettle, with the water to grain ratio being reduced because of the additional grain, in both cases, efficiency will drop. And the reason is the, the water, wort, can't get out or through the grain bed itself. So if you decide to make a big beer, in my case, I simply adjusted my volumes, right? So I would lose, I would use more grain and more water, but I would only brew, let's say, you know, I, I always did nine gallon batches. That's because that's what fit in my kettle. And I just did. Um, so if I were going to do a big beer, for example, I might just say I'm going to do a seven gallon batch instead of a nine gallon batch, because then my water to grain ratio stays the same. And I, my efficiency never went down. I never had that issue. And see, that I, makes total I sense. It. 
that makes total sense because I I just mash twice to make the same beer, right? Yeah. And by mashing twice, I keep my water to grain ratio correct, and in doing so, I don't lose that efficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The, the 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 convert conversion is a is a pretty simple thing. I mean, you could you could not grind grain, put it in a bowl of water, and eventually it's going to convert, even if you didn't grind it, right? So conversion is not the factor in uh, in, in in that scenario because it'll convert no matter what. If you do a, a one, you know, if you do one quart per pound, if you do 2.6 quarts per pound, it's, it's still going to convert. It'll just take longer. The issue is getting it out of the mash tun and into the kettle. In the case of Brunebag, it's already in the kettle. So there is no washing, quote unquote, of the grain. Uh, and some guys still sparge when they do brew bag. You know, that everybody does their own thing. It's, it's sort of a mental uh, game, I think, we play with ourselves that, you know, you, you got to wash it, you got to rinse it, you got to get that sugar off. Recirculating. But the reality is... seen all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and whatever works for you, you know, that's what you do. But the reality is all of the grain is in the kettle. All of the water is already in the kettle. You can't increase efficiency by sparging what's what's already there. I mean, you're, in fact, you're diluting at that point. Unless you hold back water, you know, gallon or whatever it is from your total volume, you can't make more than is already there. I mean, if you got a one, 105 beer, well, then that's what you got. You're not going to get it. it. It can only, you know, it can only get what it can get. It, it just is what it is. And one other kind of thing that I hear from Three vessel brewers. Uh, I hear this from people that don't brew in a bag all the time, or people who brew in a bag and then decided to go to the three vessel system, or even just to batch sparging. One of the things that I hear from them is that, hey, when I when I brewed in a bag or were using was using a brewing filter, I didn't get as good a clarity. And I think that personally, I think that that's a myth. I have zero issues with my clarity. But w- let's talk about it scientifically. Why would somebody? possibly say something like that it has everything to do with the grain bill and nothing to do with the bag um so the the, so the grain bill right all the excess if you use a lot of uh grains that produce high protein for example um you're going to get a reduction in clarity in the kettle right or in the fermenter but when you put the beer on the table if you do everything the way you're supposed to you're still going to get a nice clear beer um, and I, you know, even Brewlosophy, you know, Marshall and the guys did a clarity test uh, on bag versus no bag, squeeze versus no squeeze. And, and they said, yep, yep, you know, we've got a little issue here. You can certainly tell the difference. But they did one brew and one grain bill. And I, in fact, talked to Marshall and said, you know, you really need to, you really need to expand that over different grain bills so that you can see the real results uh, from all sorts of different grain bills because once is not going to provide the exact same results. I mean, you can look on the wall of fame on the brew bag, right? On our website, we have lots of guys who have got lots of awards uh, and clarity is one of the uh, uh, factors when those judges do the voting, right? When they make their test, clarity is a factor. And you know, the wall of fame on our website just keeps getting more and more additions to it. I, I got to say, you know, it's, it's hard to refute <laughs> that you can say, well, using a brew bag always gives you cloudy beer because it's just not the truth. 
hey, I, I've I've won medals for loggers using my brew bag. So yeah, yeah. And and I'm sorry, a logger and clarity and a logger that is everything right there, right? And mm. and I we're talking like I made a hellis, so this was as pale of a logger as you could make. And yeah. I want a medal. So yes, uh, I I would I would completely agree with you on that. It's just that I, I'm trying to bat down some of the myths that you hear when people are making that decision to go with either uh, brewing in a bag or filter style brewing. But now, yeah, you know, well, let me throw this ahead. out to you too because yeah, it's, sort of, it's not it's not a detriment, but it's a it's a it's a thing that folks say to me, and I I disagree with them gently, but it's the truth. I mean, folks tell me. You know, I got your bag and my efficiency went up, my efficiency went up, you know, 10 points. And I say, well, what did you do different? Nothing. I just put the bag in. And I say, well, then it wasn't the bag. Our bag didn't increase your efficiency. You know, that didn't happen. That particular beer, you might have, you know, who knows what. But that bag did not do a little hocus pocus in your grain bill, (laughs) right, or your process. It just didn't happen. You know, yeah. you did something different, right? Yeah, I so. agree. It has to, I think that people don't put enough into the water to grain ratio because I would say if there's something in my personal beers that I don't change much, it's that. And I could tell you based on no matter whether I'm brewing in my kegel or I'm brewing in a mash and boil, which are, are completely different shaped vessels. Yeah. I have zero. I could tell you what my efficiency is going to be, and I usually hit it spot on. And that's yeah. it's because the water to grain ratio is. I I try to keep those exactly the same every time. That is the magic, and I you know that that comes from Braukaiser's website. And when I actually read that a long time ago, but as I read through all of his experiments, that was a key factor. And when I cued in on that and started matching, you know, 2.6 quarts per pound. That's what he's, that's when he found the highest efficiency conversion slash occurred at 2.6 per pounds or so a little higher. even. Um, I queued up on that. I kept doing that. And I started telling people to do that. And guess what happened? Everybody started getting 78, 79s, 82s. You know, yep. it just is what it is. Yep. It that's is the magic. It is. It's yeah. kind of cool. And now uh, I want to, you know, like I said, when I started with my first bag, I bought an Amazon bag. Uh, I'll, I'll go through the list of issues I had with it personally. I had issues with it leaving lots of heart, hot, not hot particulate, but lots of grain particulate in my wart because it was a pretty, it had a lot of space between all in the mesh. I would say very, it was a very open mesh. And then it just wasn't a very good quality bag. It actually tore pretty easily when I was taking it out. Uh, I do use a, a kind of lift to get my, I, my bag out. Now I actually just lift my bag out by hand and, and, and push it through a colander to get, you know, some, some work on it to really squeeze the bag. But basically when, when I was, those were some issues I had with a lower quality bag. I want to talk about your filters and really the things that really make them different from, you know, your $6 or $10 bag you would see online in comparison to yours. Yeah. So, uh, we get those questions all the time. In fact, on our, you know, on our Facebook page, frequently people say, you know, I just buy a pack of paint strainers at at Home Depot and I'm good to go. I could, you know, I could get five, six batches out of those. They're only five bucks for a pack. And I say, yeah. How many times do you do that? in a year or two years that you keep buying them. Why do you keep buying them? Do they, do they break? <laughs> You're spending the same amount of money over time. Why not just buy one bag, right? And what they don't consider is what I'm about to tell you. And that is, 
first of all, is the, is the fabric that you're using food safe? Does it leach in any way? What's it made of, right? Um, secondly, what's the composition of the fibers? And you have to consider that. And when I started doing all the research on the fabrics that we use, there's a primary difference between monofilament and multifilament. Uh, in polyester and other fabrics, for that matter, of course, those are, that's not just specific to polyesters. But you know, the, the, under a microscope, a monofilament uh, thread is slick, meaning it has very few microscopic jags, right, or points that actually uh, stick off of the thread itself. Those microfibers <coughs> or points, you know, are sticking points for bacteria. And so that was a consideration of ours. We didn't just make sure that the bag was, you know, as, as reusable as possible and that folks didn't have any issues. Of course, we boiled the wort after we used the bag. That sort of takes away from it. But we also didn't want people having moldy bags, right, from organic materials and grains and sugars sticking to it and then airborne mold attracted or catching on the bag. So we wanted to make the bag as, as slick as possible. Um, and so we use monofilament fabric, monofilament thread in all of our bags. It's also food grade or food safe polyester. I, I don't think, I know for a fact, because I do the research on other, other bags, there's not a single manufacturer anywhere in the world who guarantees that their fabric is food safe. Not a single one. That's a plus, we think. <laughs> and we have food safe certificates on our website. And anytime we add a fabric or a piece of thread or whatever it might be, we run it through Veritas, which uh, you know does the research and the confirmations and the studies, and they give us the reports and say, you know, yes, uh, your stuff is good to go. You can sell it to the public. I think that's a big deal. People count on that from us, uh, particularly in all the other industries that use our product as well. In fact, in some cases, they require a certificate from us uh, in order to buy our bags. You can't get that from anybody else, and you certainly can't get that at a brew store, and there's not a single wholesaler in the United States that does that except us. If you ask anybody else, walk into a brew store and say, what's the micron rating of this bag? They won't have a clue. They just don't know. <laughs> and the reason they don't know, because they think it doesn't matter, right? Just use the bag. It doesn't really make much difference. Um, there's some other things that may be too complicated, but I'll just say briefly that there, there, there is a difference in the quality of the materials that are used as far as the thread is concerned and also the opening. So you could buy a 200 micron opening, but that bag could be made from a smaller diameter thread, which means it's gonna have uh, more threads in a given inch than a different diameter thread with the same sort of openings. And I, I won't go into all that because it's, it's really a long process. It's kind of boring for most people, but, um, the bigger diameter thread, smaller diameter thread, those two, those two things are, in our opinion, critical to what we buy and why we buy them. Um, it also determines the weight of the bag. It also determines the PSI, right? How much can the bag hold and why does it hold that much weight? How can it hold that much weight? For example, the 200 uh, micron uh, fabric that we use with the strapping can hold 200 pounds hanging all day long. It will never fail and it will never come apart in any way. It will never rip on its own. In fact, you can't rip that. There's not a human being alive that can rip that fabric with their bare hands. So sometimes people, you know, call us and say, hey, I used my bag the second time and it's split wide open. And I say, yeah, you know, that's not possible. It just can't happen. Uh, 
Um, and usually what happens is they catch it on their thermometer and they didn't even know it. They think it just split open on its own, uh, but that's not the case. So <clears throat> the 400 micron fabric that we sell, and I, I, I'll, I don't publish this, I'm just going to say it. I've done it. It will hold 400 pounds. That's pretty hefty. <laughs> when you're talking about that's a lot you know, of grain. What you're, that's a <laughs> lot of grain. But, and we sell bags to breweries for that reason. When they say, I'm doing this, what do you got? I, I can help you, right? If you're doing 55 gallon, if you're doing a lot of nano and micro breweries, use those bags for that reason because they're monsters. I mean, they hold a tremendous amount of grain. Uh, and they allow these guys to make a lot more beer in a shorter period of time than using a typical <clears throat> setup, right? So um, you have to consider what you're buying, and most people just don't, right? Mo most guys in a brew shop particularly, some of the guys that sell our products understand it because I, I talk to those guys, and I say, here are the selling points. Here's what you're selling, and here's what you should tell people because uh, it matters. Um, so... Uh, understanding what you're buying is the primary difference. As far as melting the bag, you know, that's just a process fault. Uh, there's not a piece of fabric out there that's not going to melt if you put it next to fire. Right? That's just the way it is. <laughs> so polyester melts at about 350 degrees, depending on how it's put together. It's plus or minus 350 degrees. But there are different, there are different ways to burn a bag. Right. So I did an experiment where I took the fabric, I put it in the bottom of a kettle and I held it to the bottom of the kettle while the flame was on and it was boiling. There was no grain in the it, it just and it and it didn't nothing happened. It just did just sat there. On the other hand, <clears throat> I took exactly the same fabric. I filled it with grain. I put it in a kettle and I turned the flame on. And it melted the bag. Why? Because it, it, it superheats. So between the bottom of the kettle and the bag, there's no space whatsoever. So when you turn on propane or, you know, that, that's 3,600 degrees or 2,600 degrees, I might be wrong. on It's one of those two, but anyway, it's really hot. Uh, there's no rate. There's no, there's no room or space for that heat to go anywhere. It literally can't get away from the grain. And so it superheats between the bottom and the bag and the grain. It acts as an insulator and it'll fry your bag right up. Uh, so you can melt it pretty easily if you do that. Um, and nothing can be done about that. It just is what it is. And obviously it got over 350 degrees or it wouldn't have melted, right? So you gotta consider that. And, and I'll just tag this with this fact. <clears throat> if you're heating up your mash while the grain is in the kettle, you're destroying or denaturing the enzymes that are necessary to convert the starches. So getting a couple degrees back is really a waste of energy. It's a waste of propane and it's a waste of beer for that matter because you're losing exactly what you're trying to attain, right? Which is a higher conversion rate, a higher efficiency rate. That's what, that's what you're aiming for. That's what everybody does. And I'll also say, you know, BMLase acts on starches <clears throat> between 131 degrees and 150 degrees. So if your mash is somewhere between that, 131 to 150, your beer is not going to change. It's not going to taste any differently 
at 145 or 151 or 141 or 100, it's not going to change. It's going to be exactly the same. So chasing temp is a myth in the brewing industry as well. And I've posted a number of enzyme conversion charts online, and it always gets a tremendous amount of attention because folks just don't know that. They don't realize it. Um, and in fact, in all the magazines that you see, for particular you know, brews, award-winning beers. They always have the instructions. It always says, you know, mash at, you know, 149 degrees for 60 minutes and then mash out at 170. And I, I just think, well, whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it just keeps saying that kind of stuff over and over and over, but it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. And, you know, brewlosophy, you know, Marshall did an experiment where there was a 16 degrees or a 14 degree difference. No one could tell. The final product was exactly the same. So if if I if I had one big tip for the brewing industry or the brewing world for homebrewers, it would be mash temp, exact mash temp is a myth. That's a myth. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. And I know people are going to be like, whoa, you can't, you can't say that. No, you can <laughs> absolutely, can't say that. You can absolutely say whatever you want. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth. And I'm not the one saying it. It's science. And I could I could give you all the information. It is the truth. Well, and, uh, and, and when you, you look know? even at historical brewing, right, that's what step mashes were, right? They were just basically stepping the mash all the way through that entire place. Like they, you know, start yeah. at the bottom, go in the middle, get to the uh, on the on the top side of that. And they were just kind of step mashing their way all the way through all the different te- the different temperatures that were doing different things. Right. And so. It, it and an example would be you see people do step mashes at 130, then you see them do it at 150, then you see them do it at like 160 or 170, right? And so yeah. when you when you look at that, they're all over the place on both ends of that same temperature range that you just gave to me, right? And so yeah. It, yeah. It, and I and they're doing that with things like loggers, right? And the, we're talking about these are the beers that are supposed to be the cleanest beers that you're making. <laughs> So, yeah, and, and nobody's ever done any real uh, hardcore experiments on uh, mash temp uh, and end product results. What, you know, what if, what, 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 what if, right? Nobody's ever really done that. I think it's kind of less like, well, you know, it's, it's a known fact that if you, you know, if you mash at 145, your beer is going to taste like this. But if you mash at 150, it's going to taste different. But it's not a known fact. <laughs> Nobody. It's, it, there's just no there's no information out there that proves that in any way. Uh, in fact, the opposite, as a matter of fact, right? I'm sure you and other guys have said, you know, I blew my strike temp or I blew my mash temp. I forgot. I walked away. When I got back, it was, you know, it was 139 degrees. What am I going to do now? Well, you're going to have a good beer. That's what's going to happen. Uh, you got to be honest. So. To be honest, I am way <laughs> lax when it comes to things like that. I, I'm, a, I'm a big relax and have a homebrew kind of guy. And so for the most part, I make pretty good beer. I could tell you when beers go bad for me, it always happens in fermentation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. You know, I, I, and the things I care about are, are things like, was my pH good? Right. Because those are the things that matter in conversion is, you know, if I have a yeah. really high pH, I, I worry about if it's going to taste good or not. I, I don't worry between a degree or five when it comes to my mash. I, I'm pretty yeah. lax when it comes to that. Uh, to be honest, when I was a 
I'm now moving to more electric, so I think it's a little easier to keep my mash temperature. But when I was doing a kegel on a on a on a burner, I got it to mash temp. I threw in my grain, I stirred it up, I checked it, it said it was right. I wrapped it in a blanket and I walked away for an hour. That's how I mashed. Yeah, and you know uh, another big factor there. Most po- people don't they don't like it doesn't queue up uh, that <clears throat> you know the the, the the conversion happens so fast. Yeah, it's right? like it's like fifteen or twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean at, at thirty minutes you're about seventy five percent converted. Yeah, right. Yeah. So if that's the case, you know, adding two degrees between thirty and sixty on 25% of the mash is inconsequential. It, it's a, it's a lot of effort for not really a lot of gain, right? Yeah. It just, it just doesn't matter, particularly because you've got that hot, you know, that wide range uh, of temp uh, that, that the, the enzymes are working at anyway. So it just, it's kind of, it's counterintuitive, right? To say, ignore the, ignore the, uh, the the temperature of the mash. That doesn't mean ignore it and gets down to 100. That doesn't mean ignore it gets to 180. That means if you're in the range, have another beer. You're good to go. It doesn't make any difference. I couldn't so, agree with yeah. it. You I more. think I started talking about what the fabric and then... Yeah, we were talking about we were talking melting a bag yeah, and then anyway, got sidetracked. Talking. No, it's a good time. This is, this is why we have the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So... so other kind of quality things when it comes to your bags, because I know, for example, the straps make a huge difference for me, and they're not really something you see in a lot of bags, right? Well, more and more people are starting to use them or put them on because they work, right? Because they've seen our bag, and, and our bag is pretty popular now. So uh, more folks are beginning to understand, manufacturers, I should say, understand that, that they work, Right, they just work. It's it's easy to lift them up that way, and it increases the strength of the bag, and it uh, uh, it allows you to hang it and let it drain by itself. All sort, you know, it's just it's they just work. Uh, so the strapping is the strapping. Um, we modify our bags a number of different ways depending on what people are doing with them. So if we're making bags for hundred gallon kettles or two hundred gallon kettles, you know, we'll add more straps or we'll change the configuration of the strapping. Uh, <clears throat> so that they get the the correct or best uh, weight to bag ratio, right? So they can under like they, they get it. It won't break. It won't fall apart. You're putting 300 pounds in a bag. It needs to be strong and it can't fail. Uh, you know, if it fails, that's a big problem and it's dangerous, frankly. Um, so you know, we, we do other things with them, and I think that's another advantage that uh, that that we have is that no one makes a custom bag uh, that I'm aware of in the United States. And I'm, I mean, I'm positive no one does it in the, well, that's not true. There's one I got to make a custom bag, um, but uh, not on the level or scale that we can. And I don't think as quickly as we can for that matter. Um, they just can't, they can't do it. Particularly for some, you know, we have a lot of commercial customers now um, and those guys require specific sizes uh, and micron ratings and that kind of thing. So, you know, we we do that. You can't go to a homebrew store and say, I need a bag to fit this kettle. And they'll just say, well, there it is. And you'll say, well, what does it fit? And they won't know. Um, no, I, I could tell you right now, like yeah. my, my Kegel bag has like a taper at the bottom that's very different than if you just went and bought a bag. And it's it's shaped 
for the kegel. It's 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 yeah. hard to explain, but it like the the kegel has a small hole, right? You you yeah. the, to get a lid to fit. And so when I pick that bag up with a pulley or something like that, and I'm by myself, I can pull that bag out of the wart and it's not going down the sides. It's it's actually still staying in the hole. And it, a lot of it has to do with the shape of my bag, right? Yeah, we designed it purposely that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I purposely designed it so that when you lift it up, the wort funnels or focuses to the center of the bag so that it won't gush over the sides, uh, right? Because it's touching or grabbing onto the sides. And that would happen uh, if it didn't otherwise. And so we, we made it. It's actually shaped like a funnel so because that's the way a kegel is made, right? Yep. It's, it's wider at the top. It's narrower through the body. Um, so we made the bag to fit the kettle. I mean, to fit the kegel, and, and it does. Yeah. <laughs> and I and sometimes I have people say, "Well, I, I I'll just take a big bag. I have a kegel. I just want a big bag." And I say, "Well, you know what? I'll sell it to you, but you're gonna regret this because <laughs> you might go in the keg, but you won't get it out of the keg, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's up to you. Your choice. It's your choice. Exactly. Or I've had people call me and say, "I bought a big bag and." I can't get it out. Do you have anything to work? And I'm like, yeah, the kegel bag. <laughs> That's the one that works. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's bought a cooler bag and tried to put it in a kegel. I'm sure that's happened. <laughs> I'm sure it has as well. Right? I mean, all the time. People, yeah. Can, can you cross over? Yeah, you can cross over if you want. I mean, if it fits, you can, you know, you can make it work if you want to, uh, if you try hard enough or if you're not worried about having some issues. But, you know, People do what they do. <laughs> so the one last thing I want to talk about is just kind of care for a bag, right? What What would you say? Obviously, cleanup is super easy. Turn it inside out, flip it out, and it, it's pretty easy when it comes to getting the grain out. Yeah. But what, what kind of tips would you have when it comes to things like washing the bag and caring for the bag so that it can last as long as possible? Uh, yeah, it's a pretty simple material. Um, polyester does not absorb water. So uh, drying it is literally a, a matter of leaving it out in the air to dry. It's not like you have to put it in a dryer. It air dries very quickly uh, because it's surface water, right? Anything that's on the bag is on the surface of the material. It's not in the material. So <clears throat> I just, I mean, I rinsed my bag triple, right? So I, I turn it inside out, give it a shake somewhere, put it in a bucket of water three or four times and just hang it up and let it dry. Um, when it's dry, I just pop it like you would a towel, you know, if you hold the towel up and just shake it. Um, and all the little grain bits and everything else that's, you know, on the outside of the material that pops right off and you turn it right side in and you're good to go. That's really all there is to it. Depending on what you're doing with it, you, you know, I, I have had folks say, you know, and this does happen, is that there'll be little tiny grain bits or particles that get between the strapping and the fabric. Um, that's really not a problem, but because we're so focused on sanitation and cleanliness and all of the things that go, you know, it kind of freaks people out that there's, you know, the stuff underneath the, the strapping. <clears throat> and so in that case, and it just happens, right? It's just flour that gets, and I just say, if it, if it went in there, if it got under there, it'll come out of there. Um, and so it just takes a little bit of agitation. You could throw it in the washer, let it, you know, the turbulence of the washer and the 
friction or whatever, that'll draw it out. You could put it in some PBW or something that's an organic, you know, something that breaks down organic materials. That will break it down and get it out as well. <clears throat> but it's not an issue because, you know, you're going to boil after you use it anyway. So even if it stayed in there, uh, it wouldn't have any impact on the final product in any way. As long as it's dry, if it's not moldy, again, you're going to boil. But <clears throat> nonetheless, if you want to stay clean, you know, you're going to try to get that out of there. But using something like Dawn, you know, some sort of an emulsifier that breaks up, you know, any sorts of oils uh, is a good way to wash it um, because it'll do exactly that. Uh, eventually, it will stain. I mean, I've seen bags that people have used 150 times and, uh, and they're brown. You know, at the bottom instead of white. Yeah, mine's but definitely just fine. Right? Mine's the, the color of stout. Gets stained. <laughs> mine's the color of a stout. Yeah, <laughs> it just is. It just is. Yeah, but it doesn't change anything, right? Now, no. so yeah, but just Dawn or you know some sort of you know emulsifier. If you don't have that, you literally could just rinse them really well and hang them to dry, and you're good to go for the next time. Yeah, um, I personally forgiving just, material. I throw mine in the washer with nothing, like no soap, no nothing. Just throw it through the washer, yeah. and then would it actually yeah. when I take it out of the washer, it's dry, and I just have my spot for it folded up, and there it is, ready to go. Pretty easy. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on Homebrewing DIY. Just a couple, you know, quick questions for you. I know we talked about it a bit at the beginning, but if I wanted to find out more information about your filters, where would we go? Uh, the website is uh, brewinabag.com, just like it sounds, brewinabag.com. We also have a full series on YouTube. <clears throat> I think it's 21 segments or something like that. It covers step-by-step. Step. So if you want to see how to use a, a, a fabric filter, that's the place to go. Just go to YouTube and look up The Brew Bag, and you can see all the videos there. Um, and we don't just we don't just say... We're going to brew in a bag and take you through that. I, 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 as you can tell, I talk a lot. So I, uh, I, I literally provide information as we go through the process of, of using a fabric filter when you're brewing. And a lot of the information we talked about tonight, as a matter of fact, is, is in those videos, plus more for that matter. Um, so you can go to YouTube. And then our blog has tons of information and references uh, to the points that we make in the blog or the points that I make in the blog. Um, so that's a good resource. There's also full instructions on our website as well. Uh, there's an instruction page and it's, you know, goes through all those steps uh, that you'd need to learn how to brew from, from very first time, right? You can use that to start. Um, I think that's about it. You know, there's, there's other things around the internet, uh, you know, uh, that, that we utilize, but for the most part, those three resources are probably the best. And if you're listening to this show, I will link to all of those resources in the show notes. So just if you're using your podcast app, just open your notes section and you'll have links to all of these, these resources here. Rex, thank you so much for coming on our show. I'm really looking forward to putting this episode out and Obviously, we'd love to have you back some other time. So thank you so much for coming on Homebrewing DIY. Yeah, yeah. There's lots to talk about in the brewing world. Uh, and uh, I appreciate the invite and appreciate the time. Uh, it was worth. Uh, it was fun. I enjoyed doing it. So thanks for inviting me. I'd like to thank Rex for taking the time to come on this week's show. As always, 
it's great to learn about even just the most basic piece of equipment, which you think there isn't so much to talk about when we think about brewing in a bag, but heck, we filled up like an entire hour, so obviously there was a lot to talk about. That being said, if you want to find out more about the brew bag and Rex and his entire YouTube channel and as well as his website, just look in the show notes and we'll have links to all of that there. Also, if you follow us on social media, you can head over to Homebrewing DIY, all one word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One last thing, if you head over to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, you can also leave us a message if you would like to give us some feedback. Feedback is always appreciated. Well, that's it for this week, and we'll talk to you next week on Homebrewing DIY. <laughs>